0: Evening, everyone. It feels good to be having done almost a complete day of practice. Such a precious time together. Um, I'd like to make a few announcements before I talk about mindfulness for the Dharma Talk. Um, one thing I want to remind us of... We went through the precepts last night, the five precepts, and one of them was noble silence. And I just want to um, remind everyone that you can retake this precept at any time. (laughs) So maybe if you slipped today, please do retake the precept. Um, It's about creating a container for people to feel safe that they can go as deep as they can. So um, please do retake the training to um, engage in noble silence while you're here if you might have um, slipped up. And in the um, in an effort to do a little harm reduction, if you must speak, please, um, walk, walk far away from any yogis if you need to have a conversation with someone. And sometimes you need to do that, but you should uh, please, you know, there's wonderful uh, walking trails around here, the loop or on either side of even the main road, I'm sure you could find a place where no one would observe you talking. That would be very helpful for the container. So... And then after you have your conversation, you can take the noble silence vow again. (laughs) It's a training. It's about training our minds. Our minds are puppies, and they definitely have some bad habits, and we're trying to retrain them. Trying to retrain them to live our values. The second thing I'd like to talk about as far as announcements is, um, those of you who might be newer to intensive practice or retreats might not know that uh, once a yogi comes in and takes a seat of the retreat, they're they're taking it for the entire retreat. And and yogis don't very often change seats during the retreat. So when someone has created their little space, uh, their sacred space, you know, it really is a sacred space. You know, I'm uh, part Native and I work a lot with Native communities and I work a lot actually with the Navajo Nation. Are there any Navajos here? So I'm going to say something about the Navajo, four sacred mountains. We know that within the Navajo Nation there's four sacred mountains that create what the sacred space for the Navajo people are for the Dine people. And, um... That's what we're doing with these cushions. These are the four corners of our sacred space. And we want to make sure that we respect other's sacred space when they create that. So if, you know, don't touch anybody's cushion. (laughs) (laughs) If you can help it. Um, And I want to say something about... Um, again, about the precept of not taking what is not given. And I know this is totally uh, misperception. And that is that, um, again, if something doesn't have the the name Donna on it, D-A-N-A, it actually belongs to someone. So if you might have picked up shawls or something in the dining hall or something, if it doesn't say Donna... You might, you know, we can assume that it's actually someone's uh, personal property. So we just want to make sure that we are training our mind to respect that and to um, just, you know, leave other people's stuff. You know, what happens when we're in intensive practice like this, we get very sensitive. I'm sure you guys have noticed that. You have one day of sensitivity now. Just wait a few more days. I mean, one of the beauties of uh, mindfulness is that it really is like a magnifying glass. It really blows things up so you can see them more clearly. And it blows up, you know, when something, we feel like some slight is done to us, we kind of blow it up with our mindfulness and it feels a lot more jarring than it might otherwise feel at another time. So we just want to be very careful around people because there is a lot of sensitivity. We want to be respectful of that. So um, this leads perfectly into what I want to talk about tonight. And that is I want to talk about mindfulness and what mindfulness is a cure for. Why should we practice mindfulness? You know, why is it useful to us? We know that there's a lot of, uh, you know, medical science and public health science social work science that comes out that says it's useful but really what is what is mindfulness good for and why has it been around for 2600 years so Dilgo Kenshi Rinpoche says what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment anger and ignorance This mind is always being carried away by one delusion delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprints. Wow, that's pretty serious. Um, I have this dear friend who's uh, one of the teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center, uh, Musha Makita. And her and I have been kind of emailing each other all day while I was writing this Dharma talk and she was writing a Dharma talk. And um, I told her that I was writing a Dharma talk on mindfulness and she said, oh, well, I'm kind of writing a Dharma talk on mindfulness. She She said the title of my talk is I know that mindfulness practice helps me, but I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and she was going to give that Dharma talk to some of her students. <laughs> um, and her and I, just on email, were talking about one of the reasons we don't do it or don't know to do it is that we're often caught up in the stories about our lives. You know, these proliferation of stories and in one sense you know the stories are absolutely true as we understand them the truth of the story will be based on the clarity of our minds and um, you know we're not we don't want to take away anyone's um, right to tell their story you know I mean that's absolutely a truth one thing about the dharma that I love is that you find that it's uh, that what happens is two opposite things can be absolutely true at the same time. It's an interesting thing to discover about the Dharma. So tonight I want to talk about um, some, one of uh, my favorite uh, teachings of the Buddha, and that's his teaching about the distortions of perception or the vipalasas. In one of the um, short suttas, I think it's in the Nyingma, ning, ning, ma, the Majima, Majima Nikaya. Uh, the Buddha talks about the distortions of perception, about uh, the vipalasa of sanya, the vipalasa of citta, and the vipalasa of dita. Um, and uh, this, these notions of um, distortions are really fundamental. To how uh, Buddhism understands the idea of ignorance or delusion, where does you know where does our ignorance come from? Where does our delusion come from? Why do we have so much of it? You know, modern science would tell us tell us that these distortions of reality are uh, caused by perceptual and cognitive uh, cognitive apparatuses of the brain. In fact, there are neuropsychological and neuroscience. Um, teachings about this, about misperceptions, cognitive and perceptual misperceptions. Uh, but this does, you know, what does this say about our basic nature? It doesn't say that by nature we're flawed. It just says that in trying to make sense of the world in our daily walking around, that we often can have some really serious errors about, uh, in our view of the world. And these are uh, the cause for, you know, our own suffering and the suffering that we may um, inadvertently, um, you know, cause to others as well. So the Buddha taught that there's three levels of distortion. The first level of distortion is distortions of perception. And this distortions of perception is... Like, let's say you're walking down uh, one of the nice paths around IMS and you see a piece of rope and you think it's a snake. You know, you see a piece of rope and you think it's it's a snake and um, you know, you just don't see very clearly that it's a piece of rope and rather than a snake. So you're probably, you know, what would be your reaction to that? You might have a bodily, you know, your amygdala would be um, triggered and you might have a, a um, just body, bodily reaction of jumping back and getting out of the way. And if you didn't see cl- clearly right away that this piece of rope wasn't a snake, you would start having uh, distortions of thought based on that perception. So you might, you know, think about everything that you know about snakes and about poisonous snakes. You know, you might actually think, oh my gosh, there's probably Lyme ticks on that snake. (laughs) (laughs) The Lyme ticks are going to jump up and bite me and I'm going to get Lyme disease. And then I'll get that post-herpatic Lyme chronic disease that some of our dear friends have. So you could see that from the distortion of perception, not seeing something clearly, it can uh, trigger proliferation of distorted thinking. And then if uh, we just carry on um, with some regularity of distorted thinking, what happens is that uh, there's a pattern that's created in our mind and it evolves into something called distortion of view. And that this is the most serious uh, and mo- more long-standing distortion and distortions in our mind. Distortions of perception are kind of the easiest to uncover if we look more closely. Distortions of thought are kind of like the second level of uh, misunderstandings in our mind or bad information we're getting about reality. And the third is really the most insidious. It's this distortion of view. And that is, you know, some uh, thoughts that we have that, regardless of hearing about uh, the truth or the distruth of it, it's hard for us to just let go of that belief. For example, you know, there's a lot of politicians who refuse to believe in climate change, even given all of the evidence. People, uh, you know, really refuse to believe that. And, you know, you would call that a distortion of view, a very deep-seated distortion of view. Uh, another example, actually, that um, Joseph, my teacher, likes to give is the birthers. You know, the, the um, group of people who, even after multiple evidence that our president was born in Hawaii, they refused to believe that he was an American citizen. That's a real example of a real distorted view. Uh, another thing about these V-palaces or these distortions are that uh, they're very cyclical. Um, our perceptions are formed in the context of our views. For example, um, let's say, you know, we grew, we grew up in a, uh, a neighborhood or a school that, you know, uh, had issues with people of color. And, you know, we... You know, we saw with our, um, with our you know, we had experienced that, you know, uh, we were unfairly treated in one, situ- in one situation around school or around our criminal justice system or, you know, even in commerce around our area. We could go into another area that might not have those same, those same uh, their own distortions of perception their own distortions of uh, who they um, think people of color are or queer people or anyone who doesn't fit the you know uh, mold of um, you know dominant society, and we might see you know we might uh, because we have a deep view of how we're held in one part of um, our society, we might, you know, see discrimination where there really isn't any. So I think that's one interesting distortion of view. And we know that, um, you know, based on the history of this country, there's a lot of people who have distorted views about people of color and women and queer people and trans people and. You know, just anyone who doesn't fit the mainstream mold. So what are the causes of these hallucinations? They're really distorted thinking and attachments, attachments to these views. And a a lot of times these views actually create suffering for us and they're like unvoiced assumptions that we have that we don't even realize that we have. And uh, some of these assumptions might be unvoiced thoughts such as, this is the way it will be forever. Have any of you during this day had the thought, not even realizing that something has come up and attached to that was the view, this is the way it will be forever? Another unexamined assumption that we often have that is a vipalasa, a um, distortion of perception is to be okay, this experience has to be pleasant. To be acceptable, my experience has to be pleasant. another unexamined assumption that we all have that is the source of suffering is I am making this happen or this is happening to me. All of these distortions are denying reality. It's like not realizing that the sun is going to come up tomorrow and somehow just being really, you know, suffer because you love the night and you don't want the day to come. If your happiness was dependent on that, we're really out of luck. When we think that this is the way it will be forever, we're denying the truth of impermanence, Anicca. When we say... For experience to be okay, it has to be pleasant. It's denying the very real lack of any permanent satisfaction that any sense experience can give us. There's no piece of cake or even, you know, love-making that will be the last one we'll ever need to have because, you know, even the most pleasant thing in the moment goes away. And then the thought, the underlying or unexamined assumption that I am making this happen or this, happen, this is happening to me is um, not seeing the truth of conditionality. The multiple, multiple ways and uh, causes and conditions for anything to arise in the moment. You know, I think we all know just how complex it is for any one thing to happen. Um, for example, you know, us even coming here—it it, it was a pretty complex mix of causes and conditions that it'll you know that even made us want to be here or able to be here for this retreat. And our thoughts, you know, our thoughts and our mind attributing causality to one thing or even to one aspect of ourselves. To me, it's like um, you know we have stick figure theories in our mind of how the world works. we know that it's very complex. And in our mind with one thought we will, you know, make it all about this one trait of this uh, one person or this one trait in myself. You know, it's, life is just a lot more complicated than that. So, you know, the Buddha was very brilliant in laying out these vipalas, these distortions of perception and how these distortions really are cyclical and build on each other. But, of course he had a remedy, didn't he? He was the great physician. Uh, and the remedy to our vipalasas, or distortions of perception, is right view. And one discourse of Buddha said that there were two conditions for the arising of right view, for us to see clearly what's happening. And he said those two conditions are the voice of another. And he was that voice. And we're all that voice for each other here. And the second condition for right view is wise attention. And that brings us to what we're all practicing here, mindfulness. Mindfulness is wise attention. So I'm I'm sure that many of us know that the um, Saripatthana Sutta is one of the most important suttas to us practicing in the Theravadan tradition. And um, it's in the uh, Majjhima and the Digma Nikaya. And the beginning of that sutta, there's a claim, the Buddha makes a claim, he makes a statement for all of us, he says, about the sutta, about the practice of satipatthana, he says, this is the only way, O bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So what we're practicing here, what we're cultivating is a huge amount of medicine. It's really medicine for what we have. So sati, which is the Pali name for mindfulness, sati. What is sati? What is mindfulness? It's so interesting. Mindfulness is so popular nowadays. You know, I was was Googling mindful eating because I was going to give small mindful eating um, instructions. And it's amazing how there's a lot of definitions of mindfulness that are not really very accurate definitions of it. So I think we all need to be careful about that. So what is sati? And I'm going to here um, use the um, definition by uh, the Venerable Analyo. He's a wonderful Monk, who actually just gave a wonderful retreat here, and he just wrote, a one, he wrote a book on the Sani Patana Sutta. And I'd also like to refer you to my teacher's recent book, which is just excellent. You can buy it in the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Joseph Goldstein's new book on mindfulness. It's really a brilliant book, and very, you know, just very intuitively uh, clear. So what is Sati Mindfulness. Sati is actually a capacity that we have of our awareness. It's uh, it's a capacity that we have. It's like, you know, we all could probably have rippled abs, right? But how how many of us really have that? We all have that capacity, but if we... (laughs) Right? I mean, we all... Well, many of us do. I'm sure there's people who might have a different configuration of their abs, but even if they work them out, they might look interesting. (laughs) But what we all have is we have this capacity for mindfulness in our awareness. But just like any other exercise, what we're doing with this meditation is we're strengthening that capacity. And every time we... and. Um, You know, one way to talk about this, I love the way my teacher Rodney Smith says it. He says, we have two knowledge systems. You know, we're walking around the world with two knowledge systems. One of the, you know, one knowledge system is our rational linear mind. You know, it's all about concepts and A equals B equals C. It's about logical thinking. And that's, you know, kind of a useful way to think. It's a useful knowledge system that we have. But we have another knowledge system. We have an intuitive knowledge system. And that knowledge system is intuitive awareness. That's where insight comes from. Insight doesn't come from concepts. It comes from direct seeing of reality. And we see reality directly through the capacity of mindfulness, mindful awareness. It's our second knowledge system. And that's why you know, concepts while we're uh, doing mindfulness are useful maybe to kind of direct us back and, you know, to to take a look at what we're seeing, but they're not very useful to actually extract the wisdom out of the direct seeing. And that's what we're doing with our mindfulness. We're just watching reality as it unfolds, non-conceptually, not with a lot of words and just watching it, you know, watching it with a lot of clarity and we're extracting the wisdom out of that just direct, bare attention. That's what we're doing with mindfulness. So one of the qualities of mindfulness is clear seeing. Um, Analyo says, as a mental quality, Sadi represents the deliberate, purposeful development of the receptive awareness at the initial stages of the perception process. I know that's a lot of concepts. But if we relate it back to the vipalasas or the distortions, if we are not trying to lay aside all of our beliefs and so-called linear knowledge about what something is, we're not going to see something clearly. We're going to see it with the, um, with the lenses of past history, of you know, those uh, Vipa losses of um, those distortions of perception, those distortions of thought and those distortions of view. And mindfulness actually gets in there right before we kick in all of that historical knowing and it actually allows us to, um, to see more clearly, uh, more directly what something is. Another quality of um, sati mindfulness is that it is nonjudgmental. I know we've all heard this in MBSR that mindfulness is being in the present moment nonjudgmentally. The way that um, Anolyo talks about it, or the Buddha, the way the Buddha talked about it was equanimous receptivity to have equanimity when you're seeing something. Um, And what is the definition of um, equanimity? It's uh, calmness of mind or temper, it's composure. Face into the sufferings and the joys of life without disturbance. That's what equanimity is. To be able to open to what is going on with our hearts and our minds, uh, open to all of the joys and all of the sorrows, and not be disturbed by any of it. To know that our awareness can really hold all of that. Our awareness has the capacity to hold all of that. And this equanimity is not being passive, it's just being poised in any situation. Being poised so you know how to act from what your values are rather than what your conditioning is. Oftentimes our values and our conditioning are in direct opposition to each other. So mindfulness clears up this perceptual distortion and that's one of the um, one of the central tasks of mindfulness. It is the de-automization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. We have distortions of perceptions, and mindfulness de uh, it gets us away from automatic, automatically knowing what something is, and automatically evaluating it. That's what mindfulness. That's one of its core tasks and what it does is that it progressively restructures our appraisal our perception Uh, it percept you know it progressively the stronger our mindfulness gets the more we're seeing clearly uh, what's actually happening in reality rather than uh, the distortions of our perception One of my um, favorite characteristics um, of mindfulness is that um, usually, if we're not being mindful, when something arises, and you know, you can think of all of these things as mental objects. There is something called the Abhidhamma in uh, Buddhist Buddhist, um, knowledge that there really is only 52 mental objects happening in your mind at any time. And um, usually when an object arises into your mind, you know, a thought or an emotion, what happens is one of two things. We either get really obsessed with it, we indulge in it, or we deny it and we repress it. You know, we follow it. It's like to obsess with it, obsess about it or indulge in it. It's like getting on the train of our thoughts, right? We don't even know we're on the train. We just kind of spin out in our thoughts. And then if something unpleasant arises, what we do is um, we actually engage in something called experiential avoidance. They say that experiential avoidance is one of the number one causes for drug and alcohol problems. And you could totally see how that could happen, right? But, and so when something unpleasant arises, some shame, blame, something like that. It's not there. Let's go do something else. Um, And what mindfulness does, mindfulness is so wonderful because mindfulness sits in the middle of those two things. There's actually a middle between obsession and denial, between indulgence and repression. There is just holding someone in your holding something some mental object some emotional object in your mindfulness just holding it there and watching it this technique of recognition constitutes one way to think about the buddha's middle path the middle pla- path of mindfulness So, also according to the Abhidhamma, mindfulness has certain characteristics. Uh, Well, its salient characteristic is non superficiality. So, if we really do have uh, mindfulness in our mind, um, we're not seeing something um, superficially. We're not, you know, engaging in a. a perception of something based on a view that's not allowing us to see something clearly. So uh, the you know if we have uh, mindfulness, uh, we're not seeing uh, the object in our mind superficially. Um, the Abhidhamma says that the function of mindfulness is the absence of confusion. And the manifestation of mindfulness is a state of being turned towards the object, just the ability to be with the object. So, uh, um, in February of this year, you know, I'm a faculty at the University of Washington, and I work in a um, American Indian, Alaska Native, Indigenous Research Center. And uh, I love mindfulness so much, and I've been practicing for about 30 years, practicing mindfulness. And uh, in the past five or six years, there's been other Native people who started practicing mindfulness. So I actually took uh, some of our um, research money and actually had a mindfulness in Indian country meeting in Seattle... And um, one of the um, people that we invited is this really wonderful social work faculty at uh, Cal State, um, is it Eureka? Cal State Eureka. His name is Michael Yellowbird. And he calls mindfulness neurodecolonization. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Neurodecolonization. And his meaning of that is that we can let go of the distortions of perception, you know, the internalized racism that we all have from growing up in a society that, you know, definitely is stratified by what's of value and what's not. And we know that in many cases we have internalized that. And in many cases we can't even see it and um you know that's if no other reason that is a wonderful reason to practice mindfulness to uh decolonize our minds to decolonize our decolonize our minds and make sure that we don't pass on those colonized uh thoughts about worthiness or uh ability to anyone else um Another thing that we can decolonize, or one thing that we have to be careful of when our mindfulness gets colonized is the tyranny of mindfulness. Have you guys, has anyone had the tyranny of mindfulness show up on their cushion today? This is when your mindfulness or you, you think or the mindfulness or there's something in your mind that's acting like a bulldog that's watching to make sure that you don't get off the breath. And as soon as you get off the breath, it starts barking at you and drags you back to the breath and, you know, might actually tell you, give you some, uh, uh, you know, some self-judgment might arise about that. Like, oh my gosh, I'm a bad yogi, I'm a bad meditator, I better get back to my breath. And, um, you know, I just want to remind us all that one of the characteristics of um, real mindfulness, satipatthana, is that it has equanimity, and actually, it has kindness in it. When it's needed, when it's needed, the right brahmavihara, the right positive quality, shows up into the mindfulness. So, when our mindfulness sees that that's you know because of causes and conditions, because of our conditioning, what arises is a judgment. Um, compassion will arise. Compassion will arise to hold that, and it's most. And, you know, it's really a beautiful thing that we can um, actually condition our minds or train our minds to have compassion be what arises. You know, when we are being uh, uh, self-blaming or self-shaming or some negative judgment comes up. You know, I'm doing this other. Um, Research with tribal colleges where we're using motivational interviewing. I'm sure many of you have heard of that, motivational interviewing. And I love it because to do really correct MI, you have to have something called unconditional positive regard. That's the only way or the best way to get someone to change their behavior or to change their mind is to engage with them with unconditional positive regard. And to just point out to them with that positive regard that they might have some um, dissonance or some disagreement between their values and, you know, how they're acting in that moment. That's a way that can really, you know, motivate people to want to change. And mindfulness has that. That's the equanimity equanimity, um, characteristic of it. Unconditional positive regard. Another one of our, um, I was at a teacher training and I'm in the Spirit Rock IMS teacher training program and I was uh, crowdsourcing this talk with my fellow, Mm -hmm. fellow trainees and I was asking them, what should I talk about? And Vinnie Ferraro, I don't know if many of you know Vinnie, he's a wonderful Dharma teacher he said uh, he's the one actually who gave me the uh, metaphor of the angry dog and he said remind people that it's useful to have an an ancestral lens while we're doing our mindfulness that you know our, our ancestors because of causes multiple causes and conditions often had an internal war with themselves they had an internal war And they're really pulling for us now to let go of that war. And we can remind ourselves of that. So um, some other little tips for strengthening our mindfulness. Um, We know that it was actually Michelle McDonald that came up with this little acronym of RAIN, right? Rain, have you guys heard rain? Just remember. So the R of rain, rain is like a little mnemonic for remember, remembering mindfulness. So if you're getting caught in the moment, uh, just settle back and try to recognize what's happening in this moment. Am I being resistant? Am I clinging? You know, is one of the hindrances coming up? And actually, uh, Larry will be talking about those tomorrow night. The A, of, um, the A of rain is to just settle back and accept whatever is happening in the moment. And uh, just open up and, you know, it's okay. Whatever is arising in this moment, it's okay. My spacious awareness can hold whatever it is, can hold whatever it is in kindness. So recognize, accept the eye of rain as one of the most important um, spiritual faculties, it's the faculty of investigation, it's the wisdom faculty, to not with concepts, not with concepts, but just with your bare awareness, with your bare attention, look a little bit closer, what is happening in this moment, is there sensations in my body, is there some thought that's just, you know, is there rumination happening, is there some, you know, thought in my mind that is just, you know, um, wants to be heard. Um, just to investigate what's happening in that moment. Look a little bit closer. And then the end of RAIN is non identification, is to realize that none of this stuff is personal. You know, we, you know, I know that we're all really creative and productive people, but we did not invent greed, hatred, and delusion. It existed long before we were ever here or born. And, you know, hopefully it's on its way out with us, but (laughs) it is going to be around. And in a way, you know, that is also realizing our shared humanity. You know, we are just like... Have, you know, all of the same processes happening of the person sitting to the right of us, to the left of us, in front of us, and behind us. We're all in this together. That's our interconnectedness. That is the truth of non-separation that many of our cultures and ancestors absolutely knew. They knew that. You know, the Buddha, uh, I love, you know, one of the things the Buddha says is if you want to get enlightened, go live in the forest. And I said, oh my gosh, my ancestors just lived in the forest. (laughs) You know, when they had no sense of personal property and knew that what you do once you amass wealth is actually have a big giveaway. (laughs) You know, people now are thinking those are really excellent values and qualities for sustainability. (laughs) You know, 30, 40 years ago, those were primitive ideas. <laughs> and now they're the height of, you know, ecological knowledge. It's funny how that happens. So, um, just before I end, I want to talk briefly about the right attitude with our mindfulness. What is the right attitude to have while we're meditating? You know, we talked about no judgment or equanimous. You know, and I was just reading something, and many of you have probably felt this. There will be a time that you're meditating, if you have some strong mindfulness, something really unwholesome will come in your mind, and because you're not identifying with it, it's actually, you're just watching something unwholesome, but it's not really you that's being unwholesome. You, I'm sure you've felt that that, you know, that some amount of greed will arise and you'll watch it arise and pass away or some ill will will arise and pass away. And, you know, you'll think, wow, that's kind of interesting that, you know, I'm having that unwholesome thought. But because you don't take it as yourself, it's absolutely fine that you're having it. And then other times, something unwholesome will arise and you'll be it'll be part of your identity or you'll be clinging to it. And, you know, it's just much more personal and there really is a little bite or a little reactivity there. So what we're going for is to have enough strength of mindfulness so that there is no really clinging to those to those um, unwholesome mental factors because we're doing purification. When we can hold those... Um, you know, that greed, hatred, and delusion, that ill will, and those misperceptions, when we can hold them in mindfulness, we're actually deconditioning them. When we're not denying them, and we're not um, indulging in them, we're deconditioning the misperception, and, you know, allowing mindfulness to see clearly what's happening in the moment. So non-judgment, non-doing, you know... You know, I think one of the uh, the biggest misconceptions about mindfulness is that we always have to go back to the breath. And actually, that's not true. Once we have stability of mind, what we want to do is... Um, and actually, you know, mindfulness is a force in our mind. It's not like there that we have a self to actually disintegrate. The self is actually a is one of those vipalasas, It's one of those misperceptions and distortions. There really is no self to get rid of. It, it's it's up to us to get rid of the misperception. So who's actually doing the mindfulness? The mindfulness is doing the mindfulness. The mindfulness is its own force. You know, the Eightfold Path, Manga, is its own force in our lives. And what we need to do is get the ego out of the way and let it just do its thing. And we do that on the cushion while we're meditating as well. You know, there is at some point that the, the force, the momentum of mindfulness and of Sampajanya, clear comprehension, just takes over. And we just let it flow. We, it's non-doing. You know, we trust our inner, our inner f- forces, our inner goodness, and let it do its thing. So, I'd like to end with another quote by Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He says. Simply by turning on the light, you can instantly destroy the darkness. Likewise, even a rather simple analysis of ego cleaning, clinging and afflictive emotions can make them collapse. By suppression, we may temporarily subdue our afflictive emotions, but only an investigation of their true nature will completely eradicate them. So let's sit for a minute.